All right. Thank you, Jesse. Good morning. My name is Brett Johnson. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, I like to lord that over Jesse as much as I can. Um, uh, just kidding. We're equal in authority. I got to be careful of that because, you know, we're equal in authority. So he's leaving now. I can really say whatever I want. Um, anyway, glad you're with us. Uh, and so we are kind of continuing, you know, last week, I don't know if you were able to listen online, but you know, last week, the week before, you know, this week was, was a wild week. A lot of interesting happens at the Capitol. We talked a little bit about that in the sermon. And so so today, uh, in some ways, picking up a little bit on that theme and, and we often start with a question. You know, we want to have a question to kind of get our brains moving, uh, because Isaiah, the text will, will, will be surfacing this. And so my question for us this morning is, how do we feel about power? How do we feel about power? That's kind of an ambiguous, kind of a weird question, really, when you think about it. Because you may be sitting there going like, like extension cords? Like, how do I feel about extension cords? I love extension cords. Especially when you have like, you know, a smoothie machine or something electrical that you really need to use. Although if you, if you have an extension cord for your smoothie machine, we probably should talk. You know, you probably want it like on a counter somewhere. But anyway, that's a separate conversation. So how do we feel about power? And I wanted to, you know, I, I, I sought out a, a local pagan prophet in the name of Google. I did a Google search. And so, you know, Google's a good, good place to go to kind of just see kind of what the world thinks about some stuff. So I Googled power definition. And this is what I got. It says this, it's the first one. Possession of control, authority, or influence over others. It's a good one, right? What do we think about power? How do we feel about power and power structures? When we see power around us, how do we feel about that? Second definition was a nation that has influence among other nations, a foreign power. Third definition, the ability to act or produce an effect. It's in your power to change things. Four, the right to do something, right? The president's powers. Five, physical might, right? Strength. Sometimes you're around a really strong individual. And if you've been around somebody who's just actually physically that strong, I know as a not, I'm not super enormously strong. So meeting some big dudes where I'm like, hi, you know, you feel, you feel like, man, this is a powerful dude. How do you, how do we feel about power, especially with everything that happened in the last couple of weeks, everything that's happened in 2020? How do we feel about power, because what we're going to see today in the text is really all about power and power at play. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Isaiah 36. To Isaiah 36. Again, I'm trying to explain some things. You know, some of you are maybe here for the first time you're visiting. Uh, so as you're flipping there, I'm going to pray for us here in a second, but I, I want to say this. We do gather on Sundays not to hear quaint ideas and just kind of feel warm and fuzzies. Right? We, we gather because we believe that, that the Word of God has power and that there are things in our lives that need to move and change and grow. And so we actually come, those of us who believe in King Jesus, believing that the King has some, has some uh, you know, ideas and some truths and some, some things he wants us to like, get dislodged in. Right? So it's not, like, it's not to make us comfortable. It's not necessarily to make us uncomfortable. But we want to go, all right, Lord, what are you doing? What, what do I need to shift in, right? Not just do I agree with what I'm hearing, but what does God want to do in me and around me as we get into the Word of God? Not just 
oh, this is a nice idea. So my prayer is, is that that'll happen. And I'll say this, if you get offended or you have a hard time, that's okay. Let's talk through that, right? I'm offended by some of the things that I read and preach. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest. Like I will read it and go like, oh gosh, whew, that's hard. And yet I'm preaching it. And so like, I have to wrestle through that. I get uncomfortable having to preach things. Praise God, right? So, so I just say all that to say, we're going to dive in here and look at power. And the goal here is not just agree, disagree. The goal here is to say, God, what are you, what are you doing here? What do you want me to wrestle through? What do I need to grow in? Um, and so let's, let's be a people that cultivate that. Let me pray for us that God will come and, and do that in us, that he will actually work in us this morning. And then we'll dive into our text. Heavenly Father, um, powerful one, we need you. Uh, I got sin in my own life that needs to be different. I got things in my own understanding that are not as they should be. And so, Lord, as I preach your word, would you, would you work in me? Uh, as, as, as we get into your word together, would you work in us? Would we be a community that people see you in? Not just a community that um, is Christian or that goes to church services, but would they actually see you in how we speak, how we relate, how we vote, um, what clothes we buy, what things we uh, purchase and, and enjoy? Would all of those things be reflective of you and your power. Uh, only you, the all-powerful one, can do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Isaiah 36. So this whole semester, let me go ahead and orient us, kind of give us some context, how we got here in Isaiah. So we're in the 36th chapter of Isaiah. So that's a lot of chapters, all right? So here we are, and all of the whole book has been building to this Sunday. It's been building to this showdown that happens in our text today. This is the showdown that happens between Assyria and Israel. Really, it's Judah, the southern kingdom. So, a little history. We're in the year 740 BC. So, 740 BC. So, you think about Jesus is at year zero, right? And if you go backwards, 740 years. So, you're, you're a few generations removed from King David. King David is about 1,000 BC, right? So, you have David. You have Solomon, his son, right, who built the beautiful temple. And, you know, if you've seen like, you know, national treasure, he all had all sorts of gold and stuff that people found, right? So you have Solomon, the famous wise, rich one with all the 900 wives or whatever, which that's a whole other sermon. Um, but, right, so like then you get to his kids, uh, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, which is where the, where the kingdom splits. And so we find ourselves in 740 where the kingdoms have split. So Israel is not unified anymore. You have a northern kingdom of Israel, which has already been conquered by this world power, Assyria. And then you have the southern kingdom, which is what we are looking at. Isaiah is preaching from the southern kingdom. So I know there's a little bit of detail in there, but I don't think that's too crazy. So he's preaching from the southern kingdom because the northern kingdom has already been taken over by Assyria. And so this whole time for 36 chapters, uh, the southern kingdom is going like, oh gosh, oh gosh, here they come. Here they come. Oh golly, they're big. They're strong. They're coming. Oh gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? That's what they've been doing for 36 chapters, right? And the big plan has been, do we partner with Egypt? these guys over here who might be able to help us against the big bad wolf. So that's been what's happening. And so we come to the section here 
And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see three voices. Three voices, and then we're going to see two powers. Three voices and two powers. The math does, those, those don't work together. So there's, there's going to be some tension in there, right? There's two sides of the Oreo, and then there's somebody in the middle who's the cream of the Oreo. So you got two voices and one power, okay? So we're going to start in verse 4 with our first voice. The first voice that we're going to see is the voice of the king of Assyria, whose name is Sennacherib. Sennacherib. And this voice is going to come through his messenger, which if you look in verse 4, is named Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh, which really that name is actually a title, which means the chief cupbearer right? The one who drinks the poison before the king does so the king doesn't die, right? So that's his title. What's a great title, right? You should name your kids things like that. The one who drinks the poison so you don't die. That's my kid. He drinks my cup first. No, right? So, so that's Rob Shakah. So when the first voice we're hearing as Rob Shakah is saying what he is saying is actually coming from Sennacherib. So the first voice is the voice of Sennacherib. Let's look at verse four of chapter 36. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust? That you have rebelled against me? This is the great king of Assyria saying this. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. He's like broken broomstick. You're going to cut yourself on that thing. Egypt? Really? Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, the great king of Assyria, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not He whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now and make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. (laughs) I mean, if you are able uh, on your part to set riders on them, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Pause right there. Hop over to verse 16. So, the, so there's a little interaction, and this is this, the last little part of his message that I just want you to see. Verse 16 and 17 says, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus, thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of you of his own fig tree, each one of you will drink of his own water of his own cistern, until I come to take you away to a land like our own land, a land of, like your own land, uh, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. We'll pause right there. Okay, that's the first voice that we hear. Now, if you heard that and you think, oh, that's pristinely crystal clear. I know exactly what he's saying. I got it. Well, if that's you, man, more power to you. I, I could not discern what was happening. I had to read that over about 20 times going like, what is he saying here? I, all over the place. I'm confused. 
So the first voice is the voice of Sennacherib, and he has a couple of things he's doing here. The first thing he's doing is he's mocking the people of God. The first thing that the first voice does is he mocks the people of God. Look what he says in verse 5. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? What's he doing there? Well, he's mocking the people of God. These are the people of God, the nation of Israel, who has staked their claim. And it's even become known among the other nations that these people, they pride themselves, the Israelites, they pride themselves on being the people who trust in the promise of Yahweh. They trust in the promise of Yahweh. They trust in the living God, the the, the God of Israel. And he's saying like, you're going to trust in words? Like, that's your battle plan. Your battle plan is you got some words somewhere from somebody somewhere who said something, some kind of promise or something. Uh, You do realize we have a huge army literally knocking on the door and you're going to trust in words. Like that's your battle strategy. So he starts by mocking them. That's the first thing that he does. Okay, the second thing that he does is a little bit weirder. So so he talks about, he makes fun of them. You know, oh, you're going to mock you know, you're going to trust in the Lord. Then he starts mocking their political alliances. Oh, so you're going to try and trust in Egypt? So you're, you're going to trust in the promises of God. Okay. And you're going to align with like that broken reed of a staff, Egypt, this weak and pathetic. And like, it's not even a perfectly straight broomstick. It's a broken broomstick. And anyone who leans on it is going to pierce their hand. Like those guys, you got to be kidding me. So he starts mocking their political alliances. Then he does something a little bit more subversive. Now he starts to go after their worship. He starts to talk about some of the things that they've been doing. He's trying to confuse the listeners here. So what's happening is this first voice is speaking to Hezekiah and Hezekiah's counsel. Okay, but then it expands in verse 13 to then be spoken to the rest of the, uh, of the people who are there. So, so uh, the king of Assyria is proclaiming kind of progressively. First, it's to the kind of leadership council, and there's a few people kind of listening in. And then he kind of turns and says, okay, now I'm going to speak to everybody. And then he starts, so he mocks them, and then he starts to undermine them. He starts to kind of deceive and try and kind of use their own practices against them. So look at where it says in verse 7. It says, but if you say, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he excuse me, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? So basically, here's, here's what's happening. You, you, there's no reason you should know what that means. Like you're going like, what, what is he talking about? So when you read the other parallel accounts, so Hezekiah is talked about in both 2 Kings and Chronicles, okay? So you can go read parallel accounts. And one of the things we love about the Bible is Hezekiah is a very mixed guy, right? He, he's not painted as this like perfect hero who does it all right. If you read all the accounts, you're like, wait, Was Hezekiah a good guy or a bad guy? Which, by the way, most of the dudes in the Bible, that's basically what you arrive at. You're like, wait a second. Like everyone talks about like, you know, Abraham and how he did great stuff. Well, yeah, but he also was kind of an idiot at times. And then you're like, what about Isaac, his son? Everyone talks about how he was like, here, Abraham, Isaac, he he was good. Well, kind of, he did some good, but he was also kind of an idiot at times, right? And then you're like, well, Jacob, Jacob got it right, right? Well, actually, of the three of them, he was probably the most skeezy of. Yeah, so you, you read the stories and you're like, look, These guys were not picked because they were superheroes. They were picked because they were normal dudes that the Lord put his grace on that he chose so that he could do something powerful that people would go, wait, why are you guys powerful? Oh, oh, it's because you're a people of words. You're people who belong to a God who promised himself to you. 
And there's actually nothing in itself magnificent about you. You're just a normal people. But you're not normal because you're connected to the living God. Huh. Interesting. So Hezekiah is just one more of these characters. He's one more of these. You read it. So, so just, you know, the, the spoiler alert, next week. So this week is Hezekiah's success. And next week is Hezekiah's failure. So you're going to get a portrait of what he, what, what he missed and what he did wrong next week. But this week we're looking at what he did right. So they're speaking to Hezekiah. So we've seen the first thing they're doing is they're mocking. The second thing that he's doing is he's mocking, the, you know, he's mocking the, uh, their allegiance to Yahweh. Then he's starting to mock their political alliances. Now he's trying to kind of bend things around. So that he says this thing, you shall worship before this altar, or wait, where is it? You remove the high places, right? Where he talks about what Hezekiah was doing. And what happens is when you read the stories, Hezekiah went in and actually tore down these altars that were built to worship Yahweh because they had been manipulated and they started worshiping false gods. So it was actually a good thing that Hezekiah did. So he went throughout the land and removed these high places of worship where they were starting to do uh, idol worship, which was a good thing. But then the king of Assyria is trying to take that and use kind of the ambiguity there to go, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, you trust Yahweh? Isn't Hezekiah the one who like removed these places of worship? What do you mean you trust Yahweh? What do you mean you trust the Lord? Are you guys sure that you trust the Lord? So he's, try, he's, try, he's trying to sow doubt. He's being deceptive. He's being manipulative. He's trying to win the audience to get them to be uneasy about, about the king that they're following. He's trying to unearth and undo and kind of move around their, their allegiance and loyalty to Hezekiah as a king, okay? So that's the first way he does it. Now, the most kind of deceptive thing he does happens in verse 10. Verse 10, moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it. Now, I don't know about you. When I read that verse, I'm like, wait, wait, what? I think he's using bad grammar. Is that double negative? What's happening? Is it without? That mean he, right? Like, what is he saying? But then he he keeps clarifying. The Lord, and I want you to notice in the text there, I've, I've, I've stopped this a few times before as we work through the Old Testament. Look at the font in verse 10. In both places, the word Lord is used, right? It has those all caps. We talked about this a couple times. So, so if you see Lord with a regular font that matches all the other ones, it just means like Elohim, like master, Lord, kind of general, general kind of God, right? When you see Lord with the all caps like that, they're using the proper name Yahweh. They're actually using God, our God, Yahweh's name. They're saying Yahweh in the Hebrew, very explicit. So this is the king of Assyria who's using the name of Yahweh. Okay, so I want to be, he's not being ambiguous. He's not just saying, oh, some God out there. No, he's saying Yahweh. Look at what he said. Have I come here basically without Yahweh? Huh. Yahweh said to me, so he's saying, Yahweh said to the king of Assyria, go up against this land and destroy it. Hold up. What? Wait, what? What? I thought these were like non, you know, Yahweh followers. How is he saying that Yahweh? So, so now he's trying to deceive them. Now he's trying to like say, no, not only... Not only is Hezekiah like this mixed dude where you can't really trust him. Didn't he tear down some of those places of worship? Actually, your God sent me here to judge and destroy you. So now, do, do we believe that God actually spoke to the Assyrians and said to them, hey, you're, you're, you're going to go and do this thing? Well, the interesting thing is if we've been listening to Isaiah, what has he said? He said he's going to use Assyria, right? The whip and the scourge to come through and to judge 
the people of God if they're not going to trust in Yahweh, right? That's been the whole discussion to this point. And so the interesting thing is, I think this guy's being deceptive and saying kind of tongue in cheek, like, no, no, actually God sent me to you. God told me. It reminds me of a friend that I had who, who had three separate dudes who walked up to her and said, God told me we're supposed to be married. And her response was, you know, that's really weird because he didn't tell me that. Huh. Funny how he's only telling you. Hmm. Yeah, he ended up, she ended up marrying someone else. So, that, so that's what he, this is what he's doing here, right? Is he's using the God language. He's heard enough. He knows enough about the lingo to commandeer the name of God for his own political advantage. There's a warning in that for the American church, by the way. Commandeering religious language, commandeering religious movements, commandeering religious functioning for our own political gain. We're the Christian party. We have the the moral conservative Christian ethic. Huh, interesting. I didn't know God had a political party, which he doesn't, by the way, just to be clear. So, He's now manipulating them and deceiving them and lying to them. And then he does one more thing. This first voice does one more thing. And that's why we read verses 16 and 17. This is how these deceptive voices work, right? They work from different angles here. So the last thing he does is so he, he mocks them. He mocks their trust in Yahweh and their, and their potential trust in Egypt. He mocks their actual, really their worship and his, and his parroting and saying God told him to come. So he's actually, he's saying he's a messenger of God doing God's will, if you will. And then the last thing he does is in verse 16 and 17, where he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Look at what he says. If you listen to me, he makes it really explicit, man, then each one of you gets to eat of his own vine. Man, you get to stay in your house. I ain't gonna make you move. You just stay right where you're at. Man, y'all are scared, right? This big army. Like, we're scary. We're the Assyrians. This big army, we're going to come, and you know, we're going to wreck shop. But if you listen to me, and you do what I'm telling you, look, you can stay in your house. I won't take your house. Look at that. Look what it says. You get to eat of your own vine. You get to eat of your own fig tree. Each one of you get to drink of it out of his own well, right? His own cistern. Man, it's going to be pretty good. If you trust me, it's going to go well. Things will be easier for you. So the last thing he does is he gives promises of what he can produce if they trust in him. So here's the thing. This, is a, you know, this, this, this first voice is indicative of the first power that we're talking about. I said there's three voices and two powers. So here is the first power. The first power is Assyria, right? Or Sennacherib, if you want to say it that way. The first voice is the voice of the first power, which is saying, look, this is a real power. These guys are a real force to be reckoned with. And if you have any question about that, you can go look at the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dead bodies of all the other nations that stood in their way on their march to take over the Middle East. These guys are bad dudes. They got physical strength. They got military strength. There is legitimate, actual power that is irrefutable to anyone who has half of a clue, right? So we we need to acknowledge that. So it's not like Israel is standing by going like, oh, these guys, you're such jokers. What are you going to do? And they're like, well, have you seen the bloodstains on the road? That's what we're going to do. So you better do what we're telling you. And here's our offer, which you just heard. Turn to me and I'll let you live in your houses for a little bit. But the second part of that verse, if, if you were listening, was, and then I'll take you to my land, which is pretty great, by the way but you don't have to die. You can just submit. So there's real power here. So the first voice is the voice of the first power. 
So here's the thing. They're, they're, they're literally staring in the face. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen one of the movies, 300. It's a, it has some graphic stuff in it, but this very similar picture where you got this huge army that's marching on this city where they do not have the forces to hold off these bad dudes. And they're saying, look, you got one option, either surrender or die. So that's what you got. So here's the thing. So Israel is actually in a real tension. They're there going like, okay, well, these guys are coming and they're going to kill us if we don't basically submit to them, trust in them, and actually kind of give in to their power. There's a real actual power. There's a real actual force. There's a real tension here. As there is in our life, there's, there are these different forces at play, pulling on us, stretching on us, you know, every side going like, okay, well, what do I do? Which I'm not going to necessarily resolve that tension. I just want to bring that tension up for us to say, there are these systems of power that we need to wrestle with. How, how do we feel about engaging in these systems? How do we feel about engaging in these political back and forth and all the, all the divide? And all, how do we feel as believers engaging in all that? Hear me, I'm not saying we, sh- and actually by definition, we can't just remove ourselves. You're, you know, if you, you're a citizen of some country, right? You actually have some kind of citizenship. You have to figure out, okay, if I'm a Colombian, how do I interact with the Colombian government? If I'm Venezuelan, how do I interact with the Venezuelan government? If I'm American, how do I want to operate in these power struggles and, and do I believe that the system in which I'm operating is faithful to Yahweh? Or am I, am I, am I, have I sold my allegiance for the price of my yard? Have I sold my allegiance for the price of my perceived freedoms? We've got to wrestle with this church. And, I, and I'll get my cards on the table saying, like, I, I feel I'm unresolved and I, I don't fully know how to engage. Right? I, I, I'm not totally sure how to vote at times. What, what to partner with and what not to partner with. It, it, it's, sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's not, and, but sometimes it really is. So we need to acknowledge that. And these are some of the pressures we face. So voice one is the voice of Sennacherib. Power one is the power of Sennacherib. We are looking at a legitimate world power, a force to be reckoned with. What will we do? What will Hezekiah do? I believe Hezekiah is given to us in this book as kind of a parable for the people of God. How, how are they going to respond? So voice one was Sennacherib. Let's look at the second voice. The second voice is the voice of Hezekiah. So the second voice is the voice of Hezekiah. And we see the voice of Hezekiah in chapter 37, starting in verse 14. There's three voices, but this is the second voice that we hear. is the voice of Hezekiah. So let me read 14 through 20 for us. So this is 37 verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So what happened is basically all that you just heard was basically reiterated to him in letter form. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, a throned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from this hand 
that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So we see Hezekiah's response. So he has a world power knocking on his door. He's the king. And look at what he does. Look at what he does. He takes, here, he takes the email, right? He gets, he gets an email from Assyria. He takes it. He does this. He lays it out. Okay? So I want you to picture your favorite president, right? Maybe that's Joe Biden. Maybe that's Donald Trump. Maybe that's Franklin Theodore Roosevelt. Whoever. You know? Abe Lincoln. He was a good dude, right? Okay, so, so picture this, right? There's, there's a huge war ensuing. You know, North Korea's, you know, texting because that's what we do today, right? Hey, we got bombs and we're going to drop them. So prints out the text message, lays it before the Lord. You are the cabinet members of said president. And the president goes, I know what we're going to do. We're going to take our letters and we're going to lay them out before God. And we're going to say, God, do you see? Do you see what they are saying about you? Your said cabinet. How do you feel about your president's battle strategy? I, I mean, just being honest, if I'm in the cabinet, I'm kind of a pragmatic fellow. I probably would be like, hey, bro, what are you doing? And he'd be like, excuse me? And I'd say, what are you doing? Like, is that our plan? That's our plan. Like, we're going to print out some letters and lay them before God. That, that's your plan? I'd be like, I don't know about this. I don't know about this dude. But how beautiful is this? His faith. He, want, he lays it out and has a personal interaction. He lays it out and he goes, Lord, God whom I trust. Look at how he starts. I need my notes. I'll take these, Lord. Take these back just for a second. You can have them later. Um, right? Look at the text. Look at verse 16. O Lord of hosts. Now, just so you know, when you and I read Lord of hosts, we think he's like the host, hostess with the mostess, right? Like, like hosts just means like, you know, if you go to a restaurant, like they have hostesses. Lord of hosts means like Lord of the armies. Lord of the armies of heaven. Lord of the assembled ones. Lord of the assembled heavenly throng. Those who have power. O God of power. O Lord of hosts. God of Israel. So it's like saying, O Lord of the armies of heaven. And O God of Israel is like saying, yeah, you're, you're our God. We know you. You've promised yourself to us with words. How do they know he's the God of Israel? Because he spoke it. God promised to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to David. God spoke. God spoke. God spoke. We are hinging eternal life on the eternally powerful words of God. Our words, strategy for war, amen. Yes, they are. It's exactly what they are. Words are strategy for war when they come from the mouth of the living God. And Hezekiah takes it to be so. He says, all right, you can mock my strategy, but I'm going to take your words and put them before the speaking God and we'll see what he has to say. So we have God of Israel enthroned 
So not only is he the Lord of hosts, not only is he our God, the God of Israel, he is enthroned above all. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. God who created all things, who made Assyria, who made metal, who made horses, who made all of the elements of all that we see. You are the creator God. I come to you. I incline your ear, O Lord, and hear because you are a God who listens and hears, a God who speaks himself and has encouraged us to cry out to you. And therefore we are doing that in response. God, you've spoken and you've asked us to cry out. And so here we are, we cry unto you. Truly, O Lord, look at verse 18. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands. Right? He's not minimizing who these guys are. He's not pretending as if it's not an actual formidable foe. He's like, look, we look around and we look at the nations and, and they're, they're, I mean, they, they're blowing everybody up. Look what they've done. I mean, these, these are bad dudes. These guys are not to, uh, a force to be reckoned with. So now, verse 20, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. And I love this last part, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. You want to know how to pray, ladies and gentlemen? This is how you pray. You take who God is, you bring it before him, right? This is what we hear in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, right? Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. We lead because when, we, when we're praying, we want to orient ourselves. We don't just come in prayer and like run in the prayer closet and go, oh gosh, oh gosh, oh, it's really bad out there, Lord. Yikes! Right? He doesn't do that. Now look, maybe you pray like that sometimes. Probably not the best mode, but at least you're praying. That's good. But we get a model here. There's a way in which prayer can be reorienting for us. Where we sit down and go, you know, and and I don't know if you noticed, I just realized this is a great illustration. Um, When we we sat down to get into the Word together, what did we do? We kind of had a moment where we oriented to who it is that we are here to see and hear from. Not, you know, he, he does that through each other and this is a communal act, but we're here because we believe God is here. And because God, God, God's going to meet us here and do powerful things. And so we come and we kind of orient ourselves even before we get in the word. All right, Lord, you're here. We're here to have you work on us. Do your thing, Lord. You are God. Affect us. Change us. We orient ourselves to him. And that's what he's doing. He is remembering that, that prayer is a personal powerful interaction. Prayer, prayer by itself is, is, is worthless. I want, to be, I want to say that again. Prayer by itself is worthless. Prayer is like an extension cord, right? How many of you ever walked in to like any job site or anywhere and you walked up and you're like, oh man, that is a nice extension cord, right? You I, I don't actually, I've been on like thousands of job sites. I don't think I can ever recall that. Now, every now and then, some of you, you know, you go to tech and you're like an engineering, computer engineer nerd. I get it, you know. Like, actually, that's a really nice extension cord. I love it. Uh, electrical engineer. Um, so if, if that's you, that's okay. Uh, you know, we can laugh later. But, but most of you are not walking into the job site and going like, man, great extension cord. You never do that. Now, what you will see is you'll see dudes walk on a job site and go, man, is that a Sawzall? Oh, man, that's a nice Sawzall. Oh, those things are great, man. They tear all kinds of stuff up. Do all kinds of money. Oh, they're great. Where'd you get that thing? You, walk, you sell it? Ever happen? It happens to me all the time in the job site. Because I got a nice sawzall. 
right? Well, it's my dad's, but I got a nice sawzall, right? Because sawzalls, man, they do stuff. They get things done. They cut through things. They cut through studs. They, they do what they're, they saw is all. They're, they saw everything. They're awesome, right? And very, I mean, never when I'm using the sawzall, someone go, oh, dude, that cord, awesome, right? Prayer is an extension cord. Because what, what is powerful is the source of the power, right? God is beautiful and powerful and amazing. So we never disconnect what prayer is from who he is. I was having a conversation this week where someone said, prayer is the key to growing in the spiritual life. Prayer is the, the, the key to salvation. I was like, no, 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 it's not. Prayer is amazing because God is amazing. And so when the people I know who love to pray, love to pray because they know when they go to pray, they're interacting with the living God and they're not spending all their time thinking about how great prayer is. They're going like, God, you are here. Prayer is a delight because of who God is. A beautiful date with my wife is delightful, not because the mechanism of a date is somehow itself intrinsically something. It's beautiful because of my company. Because she is in her essence delightful. So to be with her is a grace and a beauty and a wonder, not just because it's great to go to Applebee's. Right? Okay, so we get a great portrait of prayer here. This is our second, our second uh, voice, the voice of Hezekiah in prayer. Now, voice, uh, Hezekiah is the cream in the Oreo. You got one power, which is Sennacherib, and then we have our third voice is the second cookie, okay? Lord, I'm, that's probably crass to say that you're a cookie, but you get what I'm saying. You're sweet. Okay, here we go. So what does the Lord do in response? So he cries out that prayer, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, so we hear the voice of God, just like we heard it through Rabshakeh of, of Assyria, we get to hear the voice of God through Isaiah. Really why Isaiah is impressive is not because of Isaiah. It's because of who God is, right? Like Isaiah is solely the messenger of God and anything beautiful, powerful, earth-shaking, world-changing that Isaiah, Isaiah has to say is not because it came from Isaiah. It comes from the living God. And while, Lord, could we be that? Could we be that? Would, they, would people say of us, it's because he knows God, not because of something in himself. Man, we get off track with that. So this is what God says. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed concerning, or prayed to me concerning Shanachrib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken. This is our third voice. She, meaning Assyria, despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She scorns you, Israel, is what he's saying there. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice, O Assyria, and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By your servant, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choice cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. And this is where Yahweh throws down. Have you not heard? that I determined it long ago. 
I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. And I've become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on a housetop blighted before it's grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. And you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way in which you came. Thus saith the Lord. So I think we get that message loud and clear. Have you not heard? Ironic, isn't it? Oh, you're going to, are words? That's your battle strategy? Words. And listen to Yahweh. Apparently you haven't heard. I hear you don't like words. Well, listen to these. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old and I now bring it to pass. He is saying, look, I said that this would happen. And I told you what would happen if you turn and you trust in someone else. And now I'm bringing it about. So we get our third message from our second power. And our second power, not only does he speak, be assured he's a speaking God. He's all about words. He is speaking, right, in all of creation. The, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. He, he gives us his word. He gives us his son. He is speaking. He is a speaking God. We are defined as a people of the word. We, we are saved by a message. We believe the gospel, this proclamation, right? All who hear the name of Jesus and then call on his name are saved. We believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we are a hearing God people. We are listening to God people. That's who we are. Unashamedly, we will be mocked by the world. When somebody says, oh, are you kidding me? Where do you get your view of sexuality? From the Bible? Well, are you serious? Like what like rock did you come out from? If you haven't had that happen to you yet, by the way, as a believer, then just give it time. When someone will look you in the eyes, it's going to happen, hopefully a bunch, where they're going to lean across the table over your beer, over your glass of wine, over your non-alcoholic beer or your soda and say, are you serious? Like you believe the Bible is true. Like look me in the eyes right now and tell me that. I believe the Bible is true. That it's the word of God spoken by God for our life, our benefit, our gain. Because God is gracious to us. He didn't have to speak it to us. He didn't have to record it down in the scriptures. He didn't have to graciously preserve it over all of these thousands of years and preserve his truth and preserve. He didn't have to do any of that. He didn't need it. He does it for our benefit because he's a gracious, revealing God who tells us who he is. He's not deceptive, right? And so as we, as we put those messages next to each other, think about the mockery, the self-focus, and the deception in the first message. And then we hear God's words. And what we see is we see worship, right? We see God coming in justice. We see God coming in truth. We see God revealing who he is, offering who he is, teaching who he is, showing what he is like and being clear and not being muddled, not being deceptive. He's saying, look, this is who I am. Those who want to know will know. But a lot of people hear me, church. A lot of people read the Bible and go, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. Yeah, I'll go read something else. Okay. God is revealing himself to the world. He who has eyes, let him see. 
He who has ears, let him hear. So this is the third voice that we hear. But look at, we get the culmination of the story. So Assyria is knocking on the door. We got 36 chapters of ink spilled, building the tension for us. And he resolves all that tension in one verse, church. Look at verse 36 of chapter 37. So he gives his message and now he's going to give his action. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Mic drop. Back and forth. Years have passed since we started this book. I know it's felt that way in here, right? Years have passed since Isaiah started writing. Years and years and message after message after message by Isaiah, calling the people, calling the people, calling the people. The first king, Ahaz, didn't want to hear it. Hezekiah was listening. At least here he was. And someone said, you mean words are strategy for battle? When you're relating and talking and crying out to the living God, you bet your life they are. This is our God. This is what he's capable of. There is terror and beauty in this verse. These are 185,000 men bent on evil. And in an instant, the one who created the breath that is in their lungs has the power and the right and the authority to take it from them. God is the God over all creation as Hezekiah prayed. He is kingdom. He is the head of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth and in an instant, 185,000 of them are gone. End of the war. End of the battle. End of the siege. End of this part of the story. So, kind of two things. I got to land this plane. Two things. You got our three voices and you got Hezekiah, he's in the middle. He's in the middle of, you got the, the voice of a logical, reasoned army that knows how to kill and knows how to conquer and knows what they're doing and says, you should surrender, which is not a bad idea, by the way, for him to go, well, you know, I don't want to die. But he's in between because he knows that there's a bigger, better, more beautiful, and more wondrous voice, and it's the voice of the living God, and he rests and trusts and listens and is unwilling to engage in the folly of their mechanisms, their political strategies, the deception of it. He's unwilling to support bad behavior, bad practice. He is wanting to seek the Lord out, although we see him make some mistakes next week. So two things we do with this. Two things we do with this. Power played out looks like this. We are given, we are given power, just to be really clear. So as people who are connected to the living God, we, we are connected to him, right? The, the, if you take that extension cord analogy, Jesus connects us, right? And even Jesus was always pointing to the father. He's always pointing away and saying like, look, I am not the jam. My father is the jam, right? 
there's this whole kind of beautiful uh, kind of deflection of glory that he is beautiful, look at the Father. And then you have the Spirit who says, no, look at Jesus. And then they're all always pointing to each other because there's all this love being shared. There's this connection that happens, right? This power that's being given to us. In Luke 24, he says, go and wait in Jerusalem. And it's this really weird thing. They're, they're waiting for Pentecost, this, this day where the Holy Spirit is poured out. And, and, and he has weird language in Luke 24 where he says, go wait. Power will be poured out upon you. Huh. Weird. When clothed with power from on high. Interesting that he uses that language. So we are people who have this power. We are given power. But we do need to say, what do we mean by this? Because here's the thing, God has power to win. That's the first thing, power to win. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is Romans 8. We can conquer through Christ. He can do whatever he wants. He can, in an instant, snap his fingers and take all of the Russian armies and they're done. They're gone. He has the power to do that. But here's the thing. So that's what he did in Hezekiah. That's what he did in the Old Testament. When Jesus came, there was a switch in the agenda of the kingdom. We see this with Christ, which is why the followers of Jesus had such a hard time. They're reading Isaiah going like, oh man, the king is here. Yeah, you know what he's going to do? He's going to rock shop, right? They're getting hyped. Jesus shows up and they're like, oh, you know, to us the son is born. This is the guy. Man, have you read Isaiah 37, 36? In an instant. Rome, oh, y'all look out. Mm. We got Jesus. Right? They're ready to roll. And Jesus has to go, hey, guys, we're not going to do that. And James and John are like, the Sons of Thunder is their nickname. <laughs> what do you mean we're not doing that right now, Jesus? He's like, actually, like, I'm going to die. And they're like, whoa, 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 uh, 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 mm, mm, mm. You can't die. He goes, look, I know you guys love Isaiah 11. I know you love Isaiah 11. But you stopped reading. John, James, did you guys not read Isaiah 53? We're going to get to that next semester. Well, I guess that's this semester. We're going to get to Isaiah 53. There's a whole part in there, and this is the second point. So power to win. God can do anything he wants at any given time with any people, anywhere, anyhow. He doesn't have to ask your permission. He doesn't have to do, he can do whatever he wants. Which is, there's, that's, that's wonderful, by the way. I find a lot of rest in that. If I go and get in my car and die before I get to my house this afternoon, I'm trusting, you know, God can do whatever he wants. I belong to him. All of me. Everything, my breath, my life, everything. It's all his. Praise God. Power to win. He can do whatever he wants. But what he's given us mostly and what we need to focus on is power to suffer. This is the, the strangeness of the gospel, the thing that the disciples never could quite wrap their brain around. What, what do you mean, Jesus? We're not conquering right now. And we see this really clearly played out. Listen, this is John 18, Jesus' interaction with Pilate, where Pilate goes, look, dude, are you a king or are you not a king? I thought you said you were a king. Are you a king? He goes, look, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it was, my disciples would be fighting. This is John 18, 36. But they're not fighting. And then what does he go on to do? He goes on to get crucified. Which baffles Pilate's mind and baffles all the Jews' mind, which the Jews later in that same passage, fascinating, go on to say, we have one king and it's Caesar. Huh. Jesus said, yeah, I'm king of the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Which doesn't mean it's not here. It's not present. It's not active. It's just not of the agenda, of the means, of the mechanisms of this world. He doesn't even need swords. He just goes, spirit of the Lord, done. He has a kingdom of another world. Right? 
He has a kingdom from heaven, the kingdom of heaven, from above, not from here. Meaning it's not built on our logic. It's built on his logic and his power. So he gives us this crazy inversion where now we're given both the power to win and the power to suffer. And those seamlessly go together. They're, they're two sides of the same sword, if you will. So we can walk into burning buildings and God can do whatever he wants. If he calls us in there, we can go in there and we can die on his behalf. If you're like, that, I don't want to do that. We lay down our lives for the good of others. Greater love knows no man than he who does what? Sacrifice himself for his friend. Man, power to suffer. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you that's also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 and 2.14 especially. Let us, have, let us be like Jesus in the way that we think as Jesus gave up his comfort in heaven and gave up his power and authority to come down and descend and serve and die. Let us have this same mind in us that was in Christ. Right? And even notice like the armor of God. Right? He doesn't give you like battle axes and like nunchucks and daggers and throwing stars. He gives you weird things. Helmets of salvation. You know? Belt of truth. These different, all these different elements, right? I think I'm getting that right. Belt of truth. And the fruit of the Spirit is not uppercuts and roundhouse kicks. It's all this like weak laying down language. The fruit of the Spirit, the power that we're clothed with causes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. The power to suffer, church. They're going to know us because we lay down our lives and love and consider others more valuable than ourselves, Philippians 2 says. right? Consider the needs of others. Do not quarrel, it goes on to say. Don't dispute. That's what verse 15 says. Don't get in disputes. Does, does that characterize the church right now in America? Does it, church? It does not. Can we not quarrel over Trump-Biden? Can we hold to some things? We go, yeah, I have some opinions. But they're not as important to me as my neighbor is. Right? He didn't say, um, thou shalt love the Lord your God and love your political party above all else. And yet that's exactly what's happening in this time. And it's a travesty. I'm not saying don't be politically active. I'm saying you, that better be in the right pecking order in the affections in your heart, which better be pretty low. And you better have a, a, an attitude that says, I am more than willing not to care about this if I need to love my neighbor and have a conversation with the liberal guy who lives down the street who's different from me or the conservative guy who lives down the street who's different from me. Can that be who we are, church? They go, oh, that's that crazy Christian guy who loves me more than he loves anything else. He's weird. Yeah, you're going to be weird. Christians are weird. We're weird. We're word people. Word? <laughs> Couldn't resist. Okay, uh, let's pray and then we'll, yeah, do communion. Lord, Lord, we praise you that you are a faithful and powerful God. You're not a pushover. You're not a weakling. You're not one who can be coerced by us. You in your grace and in your justice have reconciled us to yourself by the blood of the cross. 
And you shouldn't have done it because we were your enemies. We were spouting off against you, and yet you came and laid your life down and, 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 and confounded us that you would take rebels and sinners and filthy people like me into your family. You are wondrous and powerful and just, and we praise you for it. We praise you for your word. Would we be a people known for our commitment to you, which would look like peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, not political argumentation, conservatism, or whatever it may be. Would we be known because of you, our love for you? God, we need you. We need you in 2021. We need you bad. Lord, would you help us? And Lord, would you come? Would you come and set all these kingdoms right, that the world would see the beautiful king above all kings? Come, Lord Jesus. Show this world who you are and do it as your people intentionally suffer for the good of others. Thank you for the power to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.